1: Welcome to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. Every week, Josh will teach you ways to help manage, risk, and protect your retirement income in the new economy. The primary focus at Aptus Wealth is to provide flexible planning strategies that can efficiently achieve your long-term retirement goals.
2: Besides every Saturday, you can also join Josh every Monday at 12.30 p.m. for Money Mondays with Bruce Hooley right here on 98.9 The Answer. And you can always find the recording at AptusWealth.com. To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptis Blueprint process with Josh, the Aptis office phone number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, we're in a new year. Everyone talks about resolutions. But what about retirement resolutions you would like people to make?
3: I guess I should first say that I'm not a huge resolution guy. Uh, I think that resolutions oftentimes are just dreams that nobody really is going to follow. Um, And they write them down as like, you know, almost aberrations. I'm going to do this. It's going to be amazing. And then nobody follows through on it. So I'm more of a a New Year's goal type of person. And by goal, I mean, let's set a goal for like the first quarter. Because if your goal is, they say if you want something done, give it to a busy person, right? So if you you set your goal and your goal is 12 to 18 months away, you're going to wait until a month beforehand and try and accomplish your goal. So let's just go for the next three months. And I think that goal has to be relative to where you are today and and this is where I think the dream thing comes into play a lot of times with with resolutions um, you know I've never saved a nickel i I, I think I'm going to start saving a thousand dollars a month no you're not chances are you're not and if you are it's going to feel so overwhelming that by month two you're going to start to feel the cash pinch and then you're going to stop and you might even dip back into what you already saved so when you're looking at goals for this year, retirement or anything that relates to finance, paying off debt, et cetera, let's set realistic goals um, and try and get to where we know we need to be, but let's chip away at it. So if you're not saving anything at all, maybe that number's 50 bucks a month. Let's just start consistently saving 50 bucks a month. Um, now the question is, where should I save it? And we can get into that as well. But in general, let's just start saving. If the objective is to pay off debt, Let's come up with a plan to pay that off, but not by making yourself feel absolutely poor every single day. Um, that's like saying I'm going to go on a diet. I'm not going to eat for the next three days. And then on day four, you're going you know, to binge so hard it's going to be ridiculous. You've got to you know, gently moderate as we step back. And I think the easiest way to at least put the idea in your head is create a bucket list of items that you want to do. So I would like to put myself in a better financial position. I hear that one often. Well, what does that actually mean? Uh, What is the list? I would like to have X credit card paid off by uh, as soon as possible. Okay. well, what date? Once we figure out what date, we can back into the number. And maybe that number is realistic to be able to do per month, or maybe it's not. But once we have an actual goal via this bucket list, it's much easier to achieve. And then we want to send benchmarks along the way. So we can somewhat reward ourselves, get ourselves a pat on the back and say, good job for doing what we needed to do. So maybe it's not pay this $10,000 credit card off by the end of the year. Maybe it's pay this $10,000 credit card down to 8000 by the end of the first quarter. And then we come up with a new goal, reevaluate, reevaluate, reevaluate. The other thing, though, you asked specifically about retirement. Um, and if you're thinking about retirement, let's think about, again, the bucket list, but what do you want your day-to-day life to look like in retirement? Who do you want to be in retirement? Uh, What are you going to do? Who do you want to spend time with? That can really influence what your retirement picture looks like, where you want to live, for example. Um, Do you want to be around areas where you can exercise, where gyms are available? Or do you want to be around good restaurants? Or what do you want to do? Do you want to golf? And then that can start to formulate a a a goal a dream goal of this is what i want the perfect retirement to look like and then again we start backing into how much money will that take and then setting quarterly goals or monthly goals or something that's on a little bit shorter more measurable basis to get us to where we need to be and it gives us an opportunity to reward ourselves more often for doing a good job i mean if you could imagine if you wanted to do martial arts or something like that and there were two belts uh you got your starter belt today and you got your finish belt 40 years from now Very few people would make that journey because you need to kind of know where you are along the way. So this is, you know, kind of checking the temperature, the plan, make the plan on a shorter basis.
2: All right. Those are good resolutions, Josh. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. I'm Diane Brennan. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, let's talk about why so many people are choosing to retire earlier than planned.
3: Well, there's some pretty interesting stats on this, by the way, and it's something that you know I've been looking at because I was very curious with COVID, um, in particular, what impact has that had? We have two factors, obviously, baby boomers are very much retiring every day, and then you have COVID uh, restrictions, mandates, et cetera. I've had a lot of clients come in and say, you know, I was going to work another two years, but I'm just going to walk away because of X, Y, Z reason. You know, I don't feel comfortable going back to work, or. On the other side, they're going to mandate that I get a vaccine. I'm not going back for that or whatever the reason might be. So I looked up some research, and uh, what I'm seeing is that uh, adults 55 and older are retiring at a much greater clip than they have been in years past. So if you look kind of statistically, and I'm rounding, uh, between about 2008 and 2019, there was about a million people per year retiring. If you look over the last two years, it's grown by three and a half million. So it's been almost double the amount of people retiring. And if you look into in these surveys, the reason on why they're retiring, they're saying they either, you know, they're getting burned out, they're working too many hours um, or, you know, their work life balance isn't as strong or a very strong one was um, their burnout was worsened through the course of the pandemic where the pandemic has taught them something. All reasons kind of point back to this pandemic. So I think there's a lot of people that are retiring based upon just that. Now, for the most part, you know we're talking about people uh, over the age of 55. So they should be in a much better financial spot. uh, But that does not mean that you should not look before you leap. Just because you have a nest egg does not mean that you have all of your ducks in a row necessarily. And what do I mean by that? The earlier you elect to retire, the more variables there are, or the more impact that the variables that affect retirement can be on your situation. For example, if you retire at 80 and die at 85, whether inflation is 3% or 3.5% is not going to have that significant of an impact because that extra half percent over a five-year window is not that dramatic. However, rewind the clock back and say, Uh, inflation is an extra half a percent or 1% greater than what I anticipated, and that's over a 30 or 40-year retirement. That can have a significant difference. Uh, Secondly, how you need to invest or the impact of volatility in the market, impact of taxes, inflation, all the things that we talk about can have a much more dramatic effect based upon the sheer length of what your retirement is. So what does this mean? I should never retire early? Of course not. Uh, I have tons of clients who retire early, and Um, For many of them, it's been a great thing. So if you have the ability to do it, I encourage it. But I also encourage you to do the research ahead of time. Do not just jump off the cliff. Make sure you develop a plan and you've stress tested it and you're in a good spot before you leap
2: To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process, Josh's phone number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. You can also join Josh as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley every Monday at 12.30 p.m. right here on 98.9 The Answer. And you can always find the recording at com. More with Josh Pick when we come back.
1: If you're concerned about the market and you want to learn new strategies to manage retirement risks, call our office to learn more about the Aptus Retirement Blueprint today at 614-364-7300. There's no cost or obligation, but space fills fast. Give us a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
4: 7300 or visit aptiswealth.com thanks for listening
1: to the aptis retirement blueprint radio show with josh pick to schedule your complimentary customized planning session give josh a call at 614-364-7300 that's 614-364-7300
2: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call. His number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. We were talking during the break, Josh, about my financial goals. And you were going to ask me what I'm going to change in the new year. I'm calling you to the carpet. I'm hijacking
3: the show. So what, what are your financial goals? And I think this is good, by the way, Diane, because we, we talked uh, you know, in the first segment about how to set goals, et cetera. So I'm curious, and I'm willing to share mine as well, but what, what are your financial goals, if there are any, for 2022?
2: Okay, well, I'm going to work much harder at marrying rich. I'm kidding.
3: Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm kidding. Good luck.
2: Yep. That's That one's going to be tough. Uh, Seeing as my past record, I failed at that quite a bit. Okay, I'm going to save more, just as you mentioned in the last segment. A lot of people say they're going to do that. But you know I was going to ask you? It's just like going to the gym. You know, everyone's there on January. They're going to start new, fresh resolutions and new goals. Uh, When it comes to saving money, how many people start the year off saying, I'm going to do it? And then they drop off.
3: Yeah, I, I think a tremendous amount. And I think, you know, and I'm not certainly not picking on you, but the, the, the term save more is, is a very vague term, right? I'm going to save more. Well, how much more? Oh, much more. Well, how much is much more? Well, way more than I'm doing right now. And I, I think what you should try and hone that into is what specifically I'm gonna, am I going to do right now? Not, not in a month. Not when I figure out the math. Just right now. Right now do it. And uh, I think that number, the easiest way to do it is you have a number that's in your head right now that you would feel comfortable with. Everybody does, but they want to save more because it would make them feel even better. Whatever number that came in your head that you said, well, you know, I could, I'd be willing to do 100 or I'd be willing to do 200. I, I should probably be doing 1,000, but I don't know if I'm capable of doing that. Go online right now and, and set it up. ACH 200 every month and then if that doesn't feel that whatever that number is if it doesn't feel like that big of a burden after a couple of months just tune it up a little bit so i went from 200 to 250 cool let your lifestyle adjust i went from 250 to 300 let your lifestyle adjust you'll be surprised since you use the gym analogy i'll use the gym analogy and and I'm certainly not a runner, never have been, I'm um, not built for running. You know, I can give you a million of reasons that I, I have excuses for not being a runner.
2: Only when chased, I, right? Only when
3: chased. <laughs> right. But I remember when I first ran, I mean, when I went for my first jog ever and it was, you know, like two miles and, and after a mile, I thought I was going to die, but I pushed through and I made it through two miles. And then you, you sign up and you go run a 5K and you go, you, you watch, you know, uh, a 10K or a half marathon on television and, or a marathon and you go, how in the heck could somebody ever do that? And then you do a five or 10 K and then you do a half marathon and then everything starts to seem much more reasonable. And I can imagine that somebody who runs, you know, hundred mile races looks at a, at a marathon and goes, well, you know, I mean, that's a, you know, whatever, that's an easy, that's an easy jaunt. So all these things seem overwhelming until you start hitting benchmarks. So if you said, I'm going to go from zero to saving $2,000 a month, that's like saying, I'm going to go from the couch, never running to running a marathon. It's going to be too painful and it's probably not going to work out. If you can do it, great. I'm not discouraging you, but you'd be much better off slowly pacing yourself up. So that would be my first suggestion is, is pitch, pick a number and then just roll with that and start building off of that. But pick a number that you're very comfortable with that you know that won't, won't you know, break the bank.
2: Right. And then I also divide the whatever the maximum contribution is for my 401K mm-hmm. by 12, and then I try and contribute that each month.
3: Which is fantastic, and obviously not everybody can afford to max out their 401k. So we don't want to alienate everybody who can't do that. But at the same time, you know, if you can, and by all means, you should be doing that. Uh, but for those of you who can't, the same thing applies. You know, I've never even contributed to my 401k. Well, where should I start? Well, definitely put in as much as you need to to get the free match that your employer may or may not offer. So if your employer says we match dollar for dollar in the first six six percent or first five percent. You should be doing that percentage. Then start working up from there if you kind of want a a starting point. So, uh, Diane, you're on the right track. As far as paying off debt, you know, same thing applies. Not I want to pay off my debt uh, fast. Try and get get rid of these words like quickly, more aggressively, fast. No, I'm going to pay off an extra $100 per month on my debt every month starting now. That will actually get things accomplished. And this is not me picking on anybody This is just me doing this for a really long period of time and seeing who actually follows through and who doesn't. The more concrete you can be, the more likely your success.
2: Well, is it better to pay off your debt totally and then start saving for your retirement or do a bit of both at the same time?
3: You know, mathematically, I could make a case for both. You know, some of the cohorts on the radio would say, pay off debt first and then work your way back up. The problem is, in my opinion, if you don't do both, some people will pay off their debt have no safety cushion, have a scenario happen, and dive right back into debt again. Other people, once their debt is paid off, will just go back into spending like, sweet, now I don't have that debt payment. Um, I think the answer is do both. I think you should aggressively do both. Certainly save up to the match in your 401k, definitely build up an emergency fund, then aggressively pay off debt. So debt should be definitely at the forefront of the list. It should be a paramount concern, but... Not at the cost of sacrificing absolutely everything
2: else. And for self-employed, I should say IRA. I divide my IRA limit maximum by twelve.
3: Of course, and that could be a SEP IRA or it could be a traditional IRA. There's a whole host of of things. But the the point is, what you're doing is you are actually saying, "Here's the number I'm going to save, and I'm going to do it every single month." Period. Um, and that's what I'm really getting at is rather than people saying well, you know, I didn't really do a good job last year, good being a completely arbitrary statement. I'm going to do a better job this year. What does that even mean? I don't know what that what that really means. We have to make those words tangible and something concrete that we're actually going to do.
2: So my financial goals are not your financial goals because you probably don't have debt and you are, I know you are saving regularly. So what does someone in your position... What are they going to do? What, what are your financial goals this year?
3: Well, most of my financial goals are about, you know, building business, uh, responsibilities to clients, uh, how to invest money, et cetera. Personal. And, and I, uh, Yeah, I unfortunately fall into that category of a, um, you know, there are saver and spenders, and I fall into that category of saving. So I don't really typically have a huge problem in the saving department. But I am looking for, and this is a personal goal. It's not a dollar amount. But i want to find i want to continue to investigate alternative investment strategies that I could allocate dollars to. I know that doesn 't answer your personal question as that this i 'm going to save this dollar amount but what do, what are things that I do so people know um, I save fifteen percent of everything that I make towards retirement. I make sure that I have an adequate emergency fund that would cover me in the event that something happened into my employment fortunately i'm i'm self employed so i don 't have uh, some of the challenges of being fired but you know, there could be regulatory changes. There's a lot of things that could happen. So I always have at least a, a year's worth of cash on hand. And then I have other goals like kids education, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm I'm not doing anything different than anybody else. I'm not doing anything, you know, crazy sexy like I found this amazing investment. You know, really good retirement planning's pretty boring. Um I'm trying to take advantage of tax changes, but the dollar amounts are always the same and as my income grows, my savings uh, grows as well because the percentages remain the same.
2: When you say alternative ways, what are you, what, if you had, okay. And I want to ask you this hypothetical question, so it's not too Mm -hmm. personal. Let's say you, you run into $200,000. Yep. Uh, what would you invest in today?
3: See, that's the alternative question. So what would I invest in? Well, one thing, whether the market's up or the market's down, I don't care. I'm always investing in the market. I acquire, 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 acquire. Um, to many that are listening, they might go, "Yeah, but you know we 're an all time high, and you know the market could turn the other way um, you 're right you 're absolutely right, but what I 've learned over the years is sometimes uh, you know you 're your own worst enemy, and you think that you have your finger on the pulse of the economy. Anybody who's bet against the United States economy for the last hundred years over a longer period of time is lost every time, so I will consistently invest in the market secondly, and this might be a little bit unique to me. But I already save, as a percentage, a very significant amount into the market. So I'm looking for alternatives as well. Those things could be things like insurance products to develop a pension for myself that provide a enhanced death benefit for my family. It could be uh, life insurance so I can have potential tax-free retirement income. And then, you know, things that I'm always investigating is, uh, you know, what does the market look like for rental real estate? What does it look like for commercial rental real estate versus, you know, residential, et cetera. What are the values of farm ground? I'm always looking for what are some other investment classes that might only not just apply to me, but apply to certain uh, investors that I have that are looking for certain things in the way of tax breaks, 1031 exchanges, et cetera. So uh, to answer your question on 200,000, I would be completely comfortable putting all of it into the market, but I would also look for other avenues based upon my own individual situation.
2: And specifically, you'd buy real estate.
3: Um, I don't know that I would right now. I haven't found a piece of real estate that really has jumped out at me as a great one, but uh, I'm not opposed to it.
2: All right. You know, and-
3: historically speaking, real estate's done really well in inflationary periods, and I believe we're in one. And what about land? Uh, land has also done well historically in inflationary periods. You know, really, if you look at time periods where inflation has been a problem, uh, precious metals, gold, silver, uh, those types of things, agriculture, real estate, not necessarily commercial, but residential real estate, land, treasury inflation protected securities and value-based stocks have always done well during periods of significant inflation and or stagflation, which stagflation is more of what it looks like we could be heading into. Stagflation. Yeah, another concept. So stagflation, if you want to kind of put a, put a label on it, um, if you think about where we are in the economy, we've had interest rates dropping for a really long period of time. That's created a bull, mo- a bull run in the, in the uh, bond market. Now we're entering into this period where we have inflation building up, but we can't lower interest rates necessarily any longer to boost the economy. We're going to have to raise interest rates to fight off inflation. But we also have an economy that looks like it may need the boost in the future of lowering of interest rates, but we won't be able to do it. So the concept of stagflation without getting too deep in the weeds is a struggling or volatile economy in a period of rising inflation. If you want to put your finger on something that looks like that, look at the early 70s. I know that doesn't point a very positive picture for where we're headed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be areas to make money in the market or make money investing. What it means is that doing exactly what you did over the last 10 years might not work nearly as well over the next 10 years, not because you should get out of stocks, but you should maybe reevaluate where you position your money in stocks based upon the overall economy.
2: And let's talk a little bit about gold and other metals. What's your philosophy on that in a stag? And how long does the stagnation or the yes, stagflation, stagflation yeah, I mean, period last?
3: You know, nobody really knows, of course. It depends on what the government does to react to said scenario. But, um, you know, if you look at the 70s, it, ha- it didn't last terribly long. It lasted for a few, uh, you know, you could argue three to five years before we started to come out the other end. Really, the, the, the great damage being done in the early 70s. Um, where it was a period where markets were incredibly volatile, you weren't rewarded uh, handsomely for putting money in growth stocks. Uh, interest rates weren't uh, very low; they were on the rise, um, so you know bond prices didn't do very well. Um, you know the list kind of goes on. But what did do well? Well, when period when people are very uncertain about what's going on in the economy, they tend to flock to safety. Well, gold has been well regarded as a safe place to put money. That said, gold over the long run has been the worst investment, arguably second only to holding all of your money in cash as being eroded by inflation. So you'd say, how can you on one hand say gold is such a great antidote to inflation and on the other hand say it hasn't kept up with inflation over the last 50 years? Because it does also have a volatile metric to it, meaning that it does very well in certain time periods, but it does poor in others. Think about the last 20 years, gold hasn't done very well. So you have to uh, look at these types of scenarios and time them somewhat. For example, uh, let's shift away from gold and say stocks. Growth stocks have done tremendously well over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, one would argue argue then that value stocks are much more undervalued than growth stocks are overvalued. So if you want to go to a point of safety in the market, you would go more towards value stocks. Without giving individual advice to everybody listening here, I would say in general, in periods of inflation, Things that have intrinsic value, like real estate and gold, do pretty well. Treasury inflation-protected securities, or what's deemed as TIPS, do very well, and value-based stocks do very well, as do smaller companies that are more nimble, like small cap and emerging market stocks. Am I telling everybody to run out and buy just those things? Of course not. But what I am saying is they might, you could easily justify they might want to be a larger percentage of your portfolio over the next few years. Um, and that 's exactly what we 're doing here,
2: when you talk about gold, are should you be buying like the gold coins, the cougarons? should you be getting the gold bricks? Are there stocks you should be investing in what I mean in short, you can do all of those things um, and, and i don 't
3: want to dive too deep down the rabbit hole of everybody go out and buy gold i 'm simply saying that maybe there's some logic to having a position in gold over the next few years, but you could do that by literally going out and buying you know gold eagles and storing them at your house. Now is that feasible? And maybe as safe as it could be. Well, you, you can't necessarily buy gold coins easily and put them in your 401k, right? So, that isn't uh, knowing that most people hold the majority of their wealth in qualified plans. Uh, that simply really isn't an, a good option. There are ETFs that track gold. You know, think of GLD, for example, as an ETF. Um, there's a lot of different areas where you can get gold exposure, all the way into gold mining stocks. But those have different metrics than than regular just holding the the the, the gold coins. Or gold ETFs. So tread lightly. I'm not suggesting anybody hop on the next commercial and say, "I called because you know X Y Z celebrity said I should call this company and start ordering, ordering uh, Cougarands or whatever it is or Swiss francs." Uh, but just know that investing in different time periods requires different approaches. Sometimes. Um, If you want to limit volatility, which if you're in your 50s and 60s, I'm sure what you're thinking about right now is not just can I retire, but how do I limit some of this downside swing? So you're managing for not just upside, but downside protection. And those types of things or those types of conversations require different money management. It just so happens that that's our wheelhouse here. That's what we do.
2: And when someone comes to meet with you and go through the Aptus Blueprint process, you take a look at, the, at their retirement picture and suggest they make adjustments accordingly to what's, what's going on.
3: Of course, that's going to be based upon their individual appetite for volatility, um, their ability to weather those storms, their financial situation on whether or not they have the ability to take that level of risk. You know, we have to look at where they're at, where their money is held, what their tax situation is and how things it would impact them and then figure out not just whether or not they can retire and what that picture looks like, but how do we mitigate risk most effectively to minimize that volatility for them.
2: To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptis blueprint process with Josh, Josh's phone number is 314-364-7300. That number again is 614-364-7300. You can also join Josh besides every Saturday on this show. Every Monday at 1230 p.m., he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley. It is called Money Mondays, and it is right here on 98.9 The Answer. And you can always find that recording at Josh's website, which is aptiswealth.com. This is the Aptis Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick, and we will have more with Josh when we come back. We'll be back
1: with more at the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick at 98.9 The Answer. Thanks for listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
2: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, Give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. Josh, it looks like the fiduciary rule is back in the news from a few years ago. What is the fiduciary rule and what does it mean to us?
3: So the fiduciary rule was originally proposed back in the Obama administration, and it was a regulation that worked against essentially commission-based brokers. And a little refresher, there are two ways really in general that one can operate in the investment space, and one is a commission-based broker, the other one is a fiduciary or an investment advisor. They're kind of used interchangeably. The difference between the two is the requirements of regulation, number one, but also how they're paid. So commission-based brokers are paid just that. They're paid commissions based upon the sale of a product or good or service. Fiduciaries or investment advisors, on the other hand, are paid fees based upon advice that they give. I'm certainly not begrudging people who are on the commission based side, but if you think about it just inherently, the way that one would make more money is by selling more products. And once one product is sold, the commissions stop. We need to go sell another product. Um, so there is the potential for churning or turning over a book of business, meaning. Uh, I meet with you, I sell you growth fund mutual fund A, I make 5%. A year later, uh, I go back to you and sell, sell you growth mutual fund B, which is basically the same thing, but I need to do that in order to make another commission. That is called churning a book. It is illegal, but sometimes it gets a little gray. Fiduciaries, on the other hand, no matter how often they trade or where they move you to or from, it has to be in your best interest, and they're not making any more money off of you because it is based upon a flat fee. And Obama was very much a proponent of the fiduciary model. We're fiduciaries, so it wasn't really any skin off of my back because I was already in that model, so I was a pretty staunch proponent for the ideology of pushing in that direction. But there were some opposition, and there were some nuanced issues to the bill. One being, while on the surface it sounded like a great idea, let's make sure that we uh, have everybody working in everybody's best interest, that's great. We're also going to limit the amount of investment options that you have inside of things like 401Ks, retirement plans, etc. And limiting, uh, I think anytime you limit the amount of choices that you have, it certainly opens up the door for you know quid pro quo. It opens up the door for you scratch your back or my back, I scratch yours in the way of lobbying dollars. Um, and now all of a sudden, uh, there's really a monopoly or an oligopoly of only a few companies that really have the corner on the market, which is always a risk when it comes to fee structures, et cetera. Competition is always good. So that was shut down during the Trump administration. Um, The other argument really was, um, if you think about fiduciaries in general, they are making a flat, smaller percentage fee in general than what commission-based brokers are making. So uh, they typically have minimums. Those minimums could be 100,000 and up. There's many uh, fiduciaries that won't work with you unless you have millions, uh, you know, a million or more, or 3 million or more. So the belief was we're eliminating uh, quality advice, assistance, and help from people who are in the lower income category. So here on one hand, the spirit of the bill is we're going to help uh, people who need our help the most in the way of lower income families who are trying to save for retirement. And the way that we're going to help is we're going to give them less choices and we're going to take away investment advisors in general that would be the ones that would be willing to work with that particular income category to begin with. So... Moral of the story, was shot down. Uh, the downside of that, though, again, you're limiting options. So, you know, are you really helping people? I, I disagree. So I was a staunch opponent of that bill, but I am very much for regulation, increased regulation, and the avoidance of churning inside of our industry, to say the least.
2: And you're a fiduciary, correct? Let's.
3: Yeah, yeah. W- you know, we were a fiduciary long before this bill was even proposed. So regardless of whether or not it was going to be proposed or not, I mean, selfishly, honestly, it would be great for me. Because there are a lot of, you know, insurance agents slash, you know, commission-based brokers out there who, quite frankly, don't do a lot of business on an annual basis. And, you know, maybe they're working from their home and, you know, they're generating $50,000 worth of commissions and they're, they're that's great. They're happy. However, if it went to a fee-based structure, let's say they're getting 5% up front, they're finding a million dollars in new money, that would take them down to, on average, about $10,000 a year. Well, most of them would just flat out go out of business. Well, those clients would be out in the ether somewhere looking for an investment advisor. And we're already, you know, in that space and doing well. So selfishly, it would have been a great thing for me. But what I didn't want to see happen was people's choices get limited. That's never a good thing. We want to make sure that you have as many options as possible inside of your 401k. We want to make sure that competition remains fierce. We want to make sure that there are new players coming into the market all the time to keep fee structures low, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that was the reason I was against it. But again, selfishly, you, know, you kind of want to be for it a little bit uh, when you're on the right side of that coin.
2: Okay, so what, why would someone use a commission-based financial professional over a fiduciary?
3: You know, lack of information, quite frankly. You know, Again, the commission-based broker model has been around forever. Almost every old, uh, and I say old not in a negative way, but tenured mutual fund company has load mutual funds is what they're called. So if you look at a company like American Funds, which is a great company, it's been around since the 30s. It's had a great track record. Five-star funds galore. Um, they still have A-share, B-share, C-share mutual funds being, I would assume, the predominant piece of their business. So it's just the way that the industry was for so long. And anytime you change the way things are, it takes time to shift over. But if you look at our side, you know we have the ability to create portfolios that are not married to one particular fund family. We're not looking at who pays a higher commission with this particular company versus that company. What we're doing is designing portfolios with investments that are the best for you. And whether we get paid 1% or half percent or 1.5% or whatever that flat fee is as a fiduciary, there is no uh, advantage to us in looking at one fund versus the other other than 1% of a larger pot of money is obviously a good thing for us. So our only objective is do what's in your best interest, limit volatility, and maximize return for you using whatever funds are the best or whatever ETFs or stock portfolios are the best in the business.
2: So if I'm understanding correctly in the articles uh, in the news, they, the commission base was, was for a different economic group.
3: Well, that's typically where you saw it. It doesn't necessarily mean that's where it always was. Um, so if you think of the fiduciary model, was very, very much uh, the thing that people did when they were very, very wealthy. Meaning, if you were worth $50 million, $100 million, you were working under the fiduciary platform, not a commission-based platform, period. But for most people in the lower-income category, they couldn't find a fiduciary who was willing to play that game. Meaning, 1% of a $5,000 account doesn't even really justify keeping your doors open, so you simply can't work with that person. So that person would work with a commission-based broker who can make five percent upfront on five thousand, at least it's two hundred fifty bucks. Um, they can justify, you know, meeting with that particular client, giving them good advice, et cetera. So yes, you're right. It was tilted one direction, but that's changing. You n- include the advent of computers, uh, the fact that the stock market has gone rampant, people's net worths have grown, and you're seeing fiduciaries working. You know, much, much lower than that, all the way down into that $100,000 category for many. Um, so, you know, it's just, I don't want to say it's a, it's a, it doesn't mean the fiduciaries are inherently better than commission-based brokers, but what it does mean is that, uh, you know, the old adage, well-built fences make for great neighbors, right? They operate under the confines that are tilted in your favor and not theirs. So if you want to go to an environment where you know that you're being protected, and that things are pointed in your direction, and you there's a much less chance of you being manipulated, go to a fiduciary.
2: And when you say that you like the fact that, or were opposed to the bill because it limited options and new products coming onto the market, how would a fiduciary-based system limit new products coming on the market? To be introduced, they need that commission-based in order to to push the product and, and, and spread the knowledge about it?
3: No, no, actually uh, quite the contrary. So The reason that this bill, the bill had many components, as you can imagine. Let's think about all the the congressional bills that are proposed, right? You find out they call it a farm bill and there's, uh, you know, pork barrel spending in there for, you know, the auto manufacturers or something. And and you go, what is that doing there? Well, the fiduciary bill on the surface was making sure that clients are taken care of. But on the underpinnings of it, it was also saying that we're going to limit the amount of choices inside of retirement accounts, because, and there's, was, their logic was essentially this: clients are not financial professionals. Most of them don't work with financial professionals, so giving them too many choices gives them the opportunity to screw up. So let's give them limited choices. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to give these limited choices to these five companies who happen to be my biggest lobbying dollars. Mm. So it wasn't that I was against the bill in all of its spirit and in many of its components. But I was against that limiting of options because it looked, to me at least, it looked like what everybody hates in Washington. And that's you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Let's pinch out the little guy and let's make sure that, uh, you know, big Wall Street or or big Pharma or big whomever gets a stronger foothold. So that's why essentially, um, whether you liked him or hated him, uh, that was the logic behind why the Trump administration shot down that bill. And uh, that was one of the particular... Sh- uh, actions that I agree with.
2: Okay. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick. To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptus Blueprint process, Josh's phone number is 614-364-7300. That's 614 364 And you can join Josh as he talks retirement with Bruce Hooley for Money Mondays at 1230 p.m. every Monday right here on 9890 Answer. The recording you can find at aptiswealth.com. More
4: with Josh Pick when we come back. 7300 or visit aptiswealth.com. Thanks for listening to the Aptis Retirement Blueprint radio show with Josh Pick.
1: To schedule your complimentary customized planning session, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300.
2: Welcome back to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, call Josh at his number. It is 614 364 7300. 614 364 7300. Josh, let's talk about Medicare. What do we need to know about its costs now that we're in the new year? Well,
3: it's going up, just like everything else, right? You know, the average person is paying a standard monthly premium for Part B. Of 148 dollars and 50 cents and just to kind of review what you pay so part a under Medicare is your uh, hospitalization cover every coverage everybody gets that you don't pay for it part B is your doctor coverage and then part D is your prescription drug and then many people fill those uh, gaps in there with what used to be called Medigap plans now are called Medicare supplements but what we're talking about specifically is Medicare Part B Last year was $148.50. This year it's going to be just over $170 a month. So what does that mean? Well, Social Security went up by basically 6% this past year. So based upon how much you made off of Social Security, that should more than cover the increase of the $22, let's call it, in Medicare. Plus, but if your Social Security check was small, you might say they were telling me about this 6% wage increase, and I'm certainly not feeling it because my Medicare went up by the exact same amount. Uh, That said, other things that happened. Medicare is laddered, meaning that the amount of income that you have determines how much you pay for Medicare. So while most people pay $148.50, it is actually possible for you to pay just shy of $500 a month for Medicare based upon your income band. And that's critically important because there's some gotchas there. And some of the gotchas are, for example, how do you file your taxes? Your criteria for income, married filing jointly versus married filing separately, are dramatically different. So be cautious and do some looking, call our office. We're happy to walk you through how it works and make sure you don't get caught in these traps. But make sure you take a proactive approach on this, because the last thing that you want to do is say, "I budgeted for 170 bucks a month, and lo and behold, my Medicare for the next year is going to be 500." So be careful. But I think this points to an overall larger issue, and that is, as we look at inflation and we look at things like not just Medicare but Social Security and, and all the governmental entitlement spending, will it keep up with inflation if we are in fact heading into this inflationary period where? you know, the days of 2% per year inflation is over. And now we're heading towards an average that looks more like three or four, with, you know, several years being maybe six or even seven or 8%, not maybe not as crazy as the 80s, but, but certainly much different than what we've been used to for the last 40 years. Will Social Security keep up? And of Social Security, how much of that will be eaten away by the cost of healthcare? Because if you think that, you know, healthcare uh, regular inflation was six percent. If I just do the simple math and say that, you know, Social Security or your Medicare costs went up by twenty-two dollars on a hundred and fifty dollars. Well, I'm not really good at math, but that's that's a double digit. So that's more than twice of what we saw in our Social Security increase. So how big of a bite? We've talked many times, Diane, over the uh, the years and the last couple of months about, you know, what do we think is going to happen with healthcare costs and how expensive is it going to be? And how much is the average family paying health healthcare costs in retirement? And it looks to me, if I look over the last couple of years, that that will be a much more significant bite than it has been in the past, which is kind of a scary thing because it's one of the unknowns in retirement planning. But it's something that we need to just forecast for and be prepared for.
2: So do you just assume that it's going up and it's how much now? So in however many years? Do you just kind of overestimate, and that way it's a nice surprise that it's less?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is kind of. So when you do uh, financial planning looking forward, they're all calculations and assumptions. And we can assume that, let's say, for example, we assume that general inflation is going to be 3% or 4%, or we get to determine that. And then we believe that Social Security, independent of that, is going to be You know, maybe it's not going to keep up with inflation. We believe that real inflation is going to be four percent, but only Social Security is only going to keep up with two. But then we think our healthcare costs are going to go up by six. We have the ability to move those independent variables, and then at the end of that projection, we can then do what we call a stress test, which is essentially say, what if we're wrong by X percentage? Meaning, we put in six percent for the inflation adjustment on healthcare, but what if it's eight? Can we still make it? So you start stress testing your plan. And, and of course, you know, one thing that I hear is, well, these are all just guesses anyway. I would say they're a little bit better than guesses. They're forecasts. And those forecasts are based upon historical, logical assumptions. So, yes, we're guessing, but we're logically guessing and making sure that in a myriad of different scenarios, a myriad of different stress tests, we can still make the trip, which is what we're all looking
2: for. And that you don't have to worry. You look at the worst case scenarios. And so a lot of people get frustrated and they're just like, I'm just going to assume that there's no, we're not, I'm not going to have Social Security by the time I retire. And Medicare is going to be through the roof. I mean, by forecasting as you do and predicting with reliable data, I mean, that gives people a lot of security knowing that they're not going to have to save as much.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you think that Social Security is not going to be there, we can have a conversation about that. If you think that Medicare is not going to be there, we can have a conversation about that. But I think, you, you know, what you need to do is you need to own your own your own beliefs, whatever those are. They need to be based in some sort of logical assumptions. So they can't just be based solely on fear. I think I think the whole world's going to blow up, and I'm going to. Well, then don't save anything. If you think the whole world's going to blow up, you don't need money. But we need to base those in some sort of logical logical uh, fact. But if you err on the side of, I want to be extremely cautious and I want to make sure that come hell or high water or hyperinflation or whatever it might be, I'm protected. Well, then we can, we can do that. We're not married to, in our office, we only run two and a half percent assumptions. We're not married to that. This is your plan. This is specific to you. But I would caution you, if you believe that Social Security is completely going to go away and Medicare is completely going to go away and you're 45 years old and you haven't saved anything yet. When I come back with the how much you're going to need to save every month, you're probably going to want to punch me because it's going to be a daunting number. So we have to kind of err this on the how do we enjoy life today, plan for the future, make sure we have contingency plans, tertiary plans, make sure that we have projections stress tested. But we don't want to forego all of our enjoyment today, all of it, for the potential of catastrophe later necessarily either.
2: This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint show with Josh Pick. To schedule your own planning session and to learn new strategies to manage risk, give Josh a call at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. And Josh, what we've just been talking about, are we going to have enough? Is Social Security even going to be there? So what if you find out that Social Security is not enough to pay all of your retirement expenses?
3: Well, if that's the only thing you got, then you have to go into cost-cutting mode. You know, the hope would be that you've listened to our show and, you know, last New Year's on the resolution day, you started putting money back and you took that uh, pragmatic, practical approach and you're in a better spot today. But let's say that that's all that's all done. Life happens. Life happened. You're living purely on Social Security. Your job was displaced. You didn't have an opportunity to save like you wanted to. Uh, Health costs, whatever it might be. Now here you are and you're living purely off of Social Security and it's just simply not enough to cover your retirement expenses. Well, we have to look at a couple of things. Step one, what can we get rid of that isn't absolutely mandatory that's creating a strain? In other words, there's two of us and we have two cars. Yeah, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow, but you might need to get rid of one of them. What about downsizing a home uh, or figuring out a way to lower your rent based upon location, etc.? Is there a way I can cut costs? This is one that we're always very hesitant on with Medicare costs. You know, I have a Medicare, but I also have a supplement, and I have the Cadillac of all Cadillac supplements, and it's costing me 180 bucks a month. I never go to the doctor, but just in case I want to have that. Well, you may need to roll the dice a little bit and lower that Medicare supplement. In other words, what we're doing now, I'm saying that we are at that point where it's uh, drown or figure out a way to swim. And you're going to have to just figure out a way to swim by cutting costs. And, and I hate to say it's that way, but it is what it is. It uh, might be a good time to use your home. So, yes, I have no other savings, but I do have a home that's paid off. Well, you may want to look at a Heckam loan or, or selling your home and downsizing. There's, there's a bunch of things that we can do. The point is all is not lost. You can always improve your situation. You just have to know the places to look develop a plan, and start executing the plan. So all is not lost. We'll do the best we can to help you.
2: Josh, there's lots of talk about the possibility of a market crash this month. What is the reason behind that kind of chatter?
3: Well, I feel like there's always talk about a market crash or the fact that the market will never crash, right? That's what the media always perpetuates, is uh, why you're an idiot for not being in the market or why you're an idiot for being in the market. It's never uh, the boring talk of, you know what you should be doing is just consistently putting money in the market and kind of putting the blinders on for the most part. Ignoring short-term trends and uh, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, and you'll be a very wealthy person. Um, so there's always talk about it, but but legitimately, I would say if we look at the last, you know, since 2009, which was really the you know the, the end of the financial crisis, the Great Recession as we call it, you know, since 2009, the market's gone up like a rocket ship. We're in the longest bull run in the history of the stock market. We had a blip during COVID, but governmental stimulus spending rebounded that rather quickly. So we really haven't experienced a significant downturn. But at the same time, we have a lot of pressures facing our economy today. We have the potential of you know, trade wars down the line, which we always have, but they do seem like they're a little bit uh, more significant as of today. We have inflation that's the highest levels it's been in the last 40 years. We have the lowest interest rates in the history of the country. So the Fed has always had this silver bullet to recover the economy quickly by lowering interest rates, which in fact injects money back in the economy and usually has a very positive impact. Uh, We're kind of running out of runway on that. Um, And then, you know, we have this virus issue. You know, it seems like every day we hear about a new, you know, variant of COVID and COVID has certainly taken its toll both domestically and abroad and if we think about all of those things kind of coming together, so we have interest rates start climbing typically as a negative impact on the stock market and negative impact potential in the real estate market because people can afford, can afford less via lending. We have no magic bullet in the way of lowering interest rates to boost the economy. And we just have also, you could argue, the end of a run in the growth sector of the stock market and we have the potential every day of governmental intervention in companies and in our employment and saying you have to do this you have to do this you have to stay home you can't go to work you can't you know it happened who would have thought that was the case and it's always kind of looming on the horizon so i think the fear is can our economy withstand another governmental shutdown can our economy continue to run like it's been running can our economy run like it's been running if interest rates start to climb Can the average American afford that increase in inflation when real wages aren't keeping up the pace? And what overall impact is this going to have in the stock market, which is where the bulk of my retirement savings are allocated? I think these are very legitimate concerns. Um, And much like all the other concerns that we have in retirement planning, uh, well, we have to do just that. We have to create a plan or what we call a blueprint. How are we going to handle these pressures? What can we expect? And what type of impact will that have on our situation? How can we best prepare for all in any scenario so that we have an all-weather plan? Um, And the only answer to that is got to crunch numbers and you got to put in the work. It's just like everything else. So we're willing to put in the work with you. We're willing to help you. Contact our office. We'll run you through our uh, planning process. We'll develop a blueprint for you. You'll understand what to expect and you'll understand what you need to do to weather uh, the upcoming storms. Now, another just unfortunate reality of retirement planning is if you're you retired or you're nearing retirement and you're in your late 50s, or early 60s, there is a very historically probable chance that you're going to experience another two, three, maybe even four significant downturns between now and the end of your life. So there is a good chance that if you have a million dollars, at some point over the next 10 years, you're going to see that get pulled back if you're just invested in the, in the quote market S&P 500 by 30, maybe even 40%. In a period of 12 to 24 months, it happens. It happens historically. It happens over time. If that does not sound like something you want to partake in as you're getting more senior in your, the seasons of your life, then you need to develop a, a plan to mitigate that, which can be done. But you have to actually go do the work. So we're happy to do the work with you. We look forward to the conversation. It's a brand new year. Let's make a difference this this year. Let's create a, a plan and have pragmatic goals and, and realistic goals and, and figure out a way to slowly chip away at them to make this year better than the last one and then the next one even better than this one. So we're here to help.
2: To schedule an appointment to go through the Aptis Blueprint process, Josh's number is 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300. That's it for today. Just a reminder, you can join Josh every Monday at 12.30 p.m. for Monday Mondays with Bruce Hooley right here on ninety 98.9 The Answer. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Catch Josh Monday, like I said, and we will be back for the show same time next week.
1: You've been listening to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint radio show with host Josh Pick. Josh helps guide his clients through retirement by managing risk instead of chasing returns. He calls it a blueprint, and you can get started at no cost or obligation. Give the team at Aptus Wealth a call today to schedule your consultation at 614-364-7300. That's 614-364-7300 or online at AptusWealth.com. That's A-P-T-U-S wealth.com. To learn strategies to manage risk in the new economy, join us again next weekend right here at 98.9 The Answer.